Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to episode six of Ideologic Obscura. And as always, it's me, your host, uh, Thomas, with the, our ever-faithful co-host, Aaron. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm, I'm good, alive and breathing. Just came back from the lovely Dutch countryside, and yeah, I'm, about, I'm ready to pod. Yeah, we're all ready to pod. We're ready to pod, bro. And today, we're very excited because uh, we actually have an expert on a, a wacky ideology. Uh a uh, an academic of sorts now i'm kidding uh <laughs> and he is a he is a fellow podcaster uh on the antifada podcast and an author of the book i want to believe Posadism, ufos and apocalypse communism everybody please welcome andy gitlitz how you doing hey hey podcast bros thanks for having me of course of course we're glad to have you on i was doing research about uh Posadism. I um, mean, like, legit, your book was the first thing that popped up in my university's library, and it was just an amazing piece. I'd hope so. I don't know what else could possibly pop up. So that's good to hear. Um, yeah, very little, a, actually. Pure ideology, hence the name of the podcast. Yeah. But, you know, the yeah. archives of Posadism are, are located in Amsterdam. One of the, the, the major archive of Posadism is located no way. at the uh, Social History Archives. And that's where I really began the project. Really? Wow. The Institute for Social History. Yeah. Oh, it's great. We should probably check it out, Aaron. Yeah, let's have a like field trip if we have enough followers one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have a field trip and then we'll do a uh then we'll do like a, a live show like you guys do in New York. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So as we revealed to the viewers, today we'll be talking about uh Poseidism. And for the politically savvy and the terminally online, they would know uh, that this is a communism with aliens, nuclear annihilation, and dolphins. I used to think this too, and before I read the book, and I after reading it, I'm just like, wow, this is only the tip of the iceberg. And so I I think we should start. Who was Posadis? Uh, well. Uh, the guy that we now know as Jay Posadas was born Homero Cristali in Buenos Aires, Argentina, in, uh, I believe, 1912. And he was the son of immigrant shoemakers. So he grew up a very working class life, very poor. Um, and uh, he was his parents were part of um, initially the anarcho-syndicalists fora, uh, which was the major union in Argentina during that time. And then they moved on to the uh, Socialist Party. And so in his youth, Posadas um, was a, a worker and he played professional soccer for a short period of time. But his true love was being a militant organizer for the Socialist Party. And um, through that work, he caught the attention of the uh, forming Trotskyists in Argentina in the mid to late 1930s, uh, who recruited him because they liked his position on the Spanish Civil War and uh, made him into one of their best organizers. And from yeah. that point on, Posadas was a dedicated Trotskyist. And after the war, he um, made his own chapter of the Fourth International in Argentina. And then um, later that chapter became the official chapter of the Fourth International in Latin America. And uh, after that, split away from the Fourth International into his own international yeah. So I did want to ask exactly for um, some of the viewers, what is uh, Trotskyism? Because, I mean, um, I think most people just are, are just aware of the term, but not exactly too uh, aware of the specifics of it. Because so like back in uh, after the revolution in Russia, um, you had the major powers of like uh, major players of Trotsky and Stalin. And what did Trotsky exactly bring to the table? Well, Trotsky was one of the most important Bolshevik revolutionaries. Um, he is a lot of evidence that he was Lenin's choice as his successor um, when Lenin passed away in 1924. Um, but uh, Stalin outmaneuvered him in, in politically and uh, within the party and became the leader of the Soviet Union. And, and uh, a little bit later on in the 20s, Trotsky became the main opponent to Stalin, but a, a sort of a loyal opponent. You know, he believed in the Soviet Union and the Bolshevik project, um, but he was uh, nonetheless very opposed to Stalin's politics at, at certain points and his style in general. And 
he believed Stalin was turning the Soviet Union into a, a kind of a bureaucratic, deformed worker state. So yeah. throughout the 30s, that's a critique they often make against like the Soviet Union and other mm -hmm. like uh, authoritarian communist regimes. But he was very pro Soviet Union. He was against Stalin. Yeah. Um, so in the late 1930s, as it became pretty clear that there was going to be uh, a world war, um, Trotsky uh, urged everyone who was sort of following him. They weren't Trotsky yet, but they were people who really liked Trotsky's position to form a new international. So the Stalin controlled the third international, the Comintern, and Trotsky uh, declared a fourth international of basically his followers. And the idea of this group was that it would perform the same functions the Bolsheviks did um, in World War I, um, leading the, the uh, inevitable world revolution that World War II would cause uh, from the ashes with a, a, a legitimate leadership under Trotsky instead of Stalin. It's a, yeah, it's a kind of apocalyptic communism, like World War II would devastate the world, it would destroy the Soviet Union, it would destroy the imperialists and the fascists, and what would be left would be Trotsky, essentially. Yeah, because as far as I know, Trotsky had like a more outward look in the sense that like communism should spread as far as possible, while Stalin was yeah. more inner looking, as in like first we should develop the Soviet Union into superpower, and then we can spread communism around the world. Yeah, he was very critical of, of Stalin's idea of socialism in one country. Yeah. Yeah. And he promoted the idea of a, what's it called, eternal revolution. Um, and like, Permanent revolution, basically, yeah. yeah. And then wasn't this, I, and, and if I'm wrong, please correct me, but it's basically like, you know, expanding out um, further um, and doing what like the Soviet Union was doing in the 1920s, in which they were uh, going into like uh, Eastern Europe and like the, and the Ukraine, the Baltics. Um, into Be Belarus and then into Poland as well, uh, where they famously lost at the uh, at, uh, at Battle of Warsaw. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, yeah. And the funny part is, like, uh, Trotsky was the commander in chief of these efforts, so like that's why you, you can see where he gets his ambition from. Uh, right. So, so permanent revolution is this idea that revolutionary situations have these intense internal effects on the society that has the revolution that can't be reversed but also they reverberate outwards internationally. So Trotsky mm -hmm. believed that the, uh, the revolution in Russia in 1905 and then 1917 um, had made the conditions for revolution to succeed throughout the world. And this led to the Red Army's offensive into Europe that eventually was defeated and um, kind of led to this interwar period where the, the, the Soviet Union was contained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So and then you see that again uh, when he gets exiled to Mexico um, and then he starts to build up a base in Latin America in which like Latin America would kind of be a jumping off point uh, for world revolution, I guess. And it's, it reminds me kind of as well of like uh, third worldism, though this hadn't developed at that time, um, in which like the working class of developing uh, nations, particularly in the global south, or the third world that was called at the, at the time, though after the Cold War, uh, would kind of like be the uh, the leaders, the vanguard of the revolution. Well, yeah, Trotsky didn't believe that necessarily. Um, he oh. he went to Mexico because that's he just went to a lot of countries trying to find refuge, um, and he found it uh, uh, under Lazaro Cardenas, who was sympathetic to him. Um, but Posadas extremely believed that the uh, colonial and semi-colonial world, especially Latin America, would lead the revolution after the war. And so this was his main bone of contention with the rest of the Fourth International, that the Posadists, uh, the, the Latin American Bureau under his leadership, the Posadists, um, were being treated as uh, just functionaries of the European Fourth International. And mm -hmm. coming into uh, the late 50s and 60s, he said, look, um, Europe is not having a revolution. There is revolution in North Africa and in South America and in Asia. Uh, it's time to transfer the leadership of the Fourth International to the Third World, uh, mainly me. And um, they, uh, you know, liked Posadas' work, but they didn't like him intellectually or politically. They thought he was a bit strange. Uh, so um, he broke with the Fourth International and created his own, the Posadist Fourth International in 1961. Yeah, and then, um, yeah, because, like, there was also a power struggle in there uh, within it as well, 
Um, from what I understand, you had like that whole like a uh, fight between Posadas and Pablo from what I remember. Well, it was the, the Pabloites. Uh, Pablo himself was in jail, which led to the power struggle. And um, Posadas was part of Pablo's majority in the Fourth International. Uh, but Pablo um, famously came up with this idea that World War II hadn't ended or World War III was about to begin and it would be a nuclear war. And so this is where the nuclear war aspect of Posadism comes from. This was the position of the Fourth International at the end of World War II until about 1960, when the Pabloists are outmaneuvered in the Fourth International. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, and uh, so like, how would this uh, nuclear war translate as something beneficial for the Pabloites and Trotskyists in general? Well, uh, they wouldn't say it was beneficial so much as that it was coming and necessary. So they believed that capitalism was on the verge of collapse um, and they believe that the international revolution would break out as Trotsky had predicted. And they believe this from as early as 1947 at the end of World War II. Um, and uh, it was a reasonable thing to think back then because really the European economy was destroyed. Um, it caused countries throughout the third world, especially in Latin America, to break away from certain predatory colonial-esque trade agreements which is why you see such incredible public works projects in places like Argentina, Brazil and Guatemala, Mexico, all throughout Latin America, they were able to actually use their wealth and their position of leverage against Europe um, to rebuild. Um, so Posadas uh, or the Trotskyists in general thought this meant that the, the colonial uh, revolution was at hand, um, but the European economy um, recovered and became a powerhouse again in the 50s. And the Soviet Union, um, instead of pursuing a, uh, you know, a, a warlike stance against imperialism um, and the, the capitalist world, had a stance of peaceful coexistence. So yeah, it really did not seem that World War III was on the horizon anymore in the late 50s. And yeah. so that idea fell out of favor with the Trotskyists, uh, except for with Posadas, who, who held on to it um, more extremely than anyone ever had and for the, the remainder of his life. Yeah. And uh, the nuclear, and from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, nuclear aspect is similar to, to the World Revolution uh, kind of thing as well, because well, I'm not sure like where exactly in the ideological development, but basically everything gets cleansed with atomic fire. What would be left is would be the workers and then no more of these capitalists or these bureaucratic worker states. And that would, and it's kind of like uh, what Trotsky had with the world revolution, I guess, uh, with, uh, with him being the only one left, kind of like in a Thunderdome, I guess. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. That. Yeah, that's pretty close to the case. I mean, uh, uh, at, at times that's, uh, I think for Pablo, that was a little bit vulgar. Like he, his re rationale was, uh, you know, not exactly like Thunderdome-esque, but Posadas really wrote things that are exactly like that. Like he went to an architectural conference in Cuba in the early days of the revolution, and they were talking about what kind of buildings to create. And Posadas was like, why are you talking about building anything right now? <laughs> if there's going to be a nuclear war, everything's going to be destroyed. Like, so that was their mindset in the early 60s. Yeah. And then, as you mentioned, Cuba, you had the whole, uh, you had the October crisis or the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right. And the, the Trotskyists in Cuba, the Trotskyist party in Cuba that formed um, out of the revolution were Posadists. And so during the missile crisis, they were agitating uh, to go to war with the United States, even if it would mean the destruction of Cuba. And when, um, when the Soviet Union uh, turned around the, the ships, um, the Posadists critiqued the Soviet Union and critiqued Castro and that's how they, they got suppressed and eventually banned in Cuba uh, yeah. because they so, they really I, thought that it would have been better for Cuba to have been destroyed than to have conciliated like that. Yeah, I was I was yeah. going to ask. So like they critiqued uh, they critiqued Cuba because they didn't initiate a nuclear war that destroyed the entire planet or just Cuba. Essentially, yes. I mean, and, uh, you know, I, Castro and Guevara were also upset about this. Castro uh, uh, punched a mirror when he heard like uh, like the Black Flag album cover, he punched the mirror in his office when he heard from Khrushchev 
that they were turning the ships around. And Guevara eventually uh, left the country out of basically his political differences with the Soviet line. Yeah. And from what I remember, Guevara was actually kind of, it was hinted or at least kind of there was some evidence that he was sympathetic to the Trotskyists. Yeah, exactly. He wasn't uh, necessarily a Trotskyist himself, um, but the Posadists saw him as the most revolutionary thinker in the revolution in Cuba. And um, he, uh, I don't think he liked the Posadists very much, but he uh, made sure to free them as one of his last acts before leaving Cuba. He, he worked out a deal that they could, because basically all of them were in, in, in jail by the time Guevara left. And he worked out a deal that they would be freed in exchange for no longer uh, having their party. Yeah. See, that's, yeah, that's quite fascinating. And like now that we're talking about Che, I wanted to ask, like every famous communist leader has their own like famous doctrine, like Mao Zedong has the shadow state, Che Guevara has a modified version of the vanguard to initiate the revolution. But like, what is the Posadas approach to initiating a revolution to ensure nuclear catastrophe happens or after nuclear catastrophe? Well, it, it was different at different times. Um, their, their best uh, attempt at it was actually in Guatemala, where there was a guerrilla struggle um, against the, uh, the state, which was CIA backed, um, that Posadas was able to, uh, for a short period of time, claim the ideological leadership of. So the MR-13 um, which really initiated the guerrilla struggle in Guatemala that lasted for many decades, um, or two decades, I should say, uh, was under the leadership of Posadas and were Trotskyists. And their model was uh, something like Guevara's Focoismo, these like guerrilla cells, but they would adhere to the, um, the line of Posadas and they would set up armed peasant Soviets wherever they went. And so they did this in Guatemala for... Uh, a couple of years, but unfortunately, at the same time, um, the uh, the techniques that would become the dirty war uh, that would really be uh, expand into like a political genocide and uh, a genocide of indigenous people were being formulated by the state. And so a lot of these yeah. groups that the Posadas set up were just uh, wiped out. Um, yeah, and I, yeah. I don't think they necessarily could have seen that coming, but it was a huge disaster. Yeah, and like, yeah, no, I mean, that was like the whole thing that was going on uh, with uh, Operation Condor and the United States involvement in uh, in setting up uh, anti-communist like uh, dictatorships. Um, yeah, that and, was like, the, the early whole, days yeah. of, of, of what would become Condor, um, which really uh, began in full force in, in South America in the 70s. And uh, at that point, the Posadists um, had sort of fallen apart. They still existed. There were still small cadres. But in the early 60s, the Posadists really had a mass base. And um, as they sort of fell apart throughout the 60s because of Posadists' megalomania and some of his strange ideas, which he later became famous for, um, and also the intense repression they were facing, they lost that mass base. Uh, and in the 70s, the Posadas were kind of a, an afterthought for Condor. Um, but Posadas himself was like on the kill list of, uh, especially in Argentina. Yeah, well, because of uh, a, a yeah, Perón, right? Well, yeah, when Perón returns to Argentina uh, in, in 73, I believe, uh, no one's really sure if he's going to go to the left or go to the right. And it turns out he goes hard to the right and uh, empowers the the far right wing of his base to wipe yeah. out the communists. After like, after the, uh, what's it called? The, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was the airport where he arrived in and they had that whole like massacre there. Right. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I try to talk about that a little bit in the book, but it was, um, yeah, really horrific incident where, you know, the, the entire left of Argentina is cheering this guy on and it turns into this firefight orchestrated by his security team. Yeah. Yeah. No. That's uh, yeah. And that was. And the funny thing was about about that was is that Peron, who for the viewers who may not know this, uh, Juan Peron was kind of this, uh, um, kind of like a quasi-fascist, um, or at least a fascist sympathetic uh, 
uh, leader of uh, of a uh, what's it called of a uh, of Argentina, but he was also like very pro worker. And then he became, uh, you know, a big a political uh, force by, you know, working with large corporations, but also with um, workers uh, and, and was a big supporter of labor unions. Um, and so but eventually got cooed by the by the by the conservatives and the right. But he would also eventually swing to the right as well. And the Posadas actually supported Peron for a time because uh, he was uh, anti-American and anti-imperialist. Well, yeah, they they correctly, I think, understood that um, Perón had taken over the workers movement and that the workers identified all of their gains during the 40s with Perón. And so instead of uh, characterizing Perón and the Peronist movement as simply fascist, as most of the leftists did at the time, uh, including the, their main rival Trotskyist groups, um, they said that uh, they were going to work with the Peronist movement and influence it and push it towards um, a workers' revolution. And this is where they had a lot of success in South America is understanding uh, that uh, the workers were won over to this kind of Bonapartist uh, leadership that became so popular in the, the 40s and 50s. And eventually the uh, other Trotskyists in, in Argentina uh, came to this position as well. Yeah, and from and from what I understand now, like uh, um, this is kind of, we're kind of like going around in time a bit. But Posadas' son uh, Leon actually is like a a, a Peronist right now. Actually, from what I understand. Yeah, he's uh, in Argentina now. The Trotskyists are um, they're not you know huge. They're not in power in any way, yeah. but they're the the biggest Trotskyist uh, influence in the world is probably in Argentina or the biggest Trotskyist movement at least, um, but they are totally outside the Peronist establishment. Um, yeah. And, except for the remains of the, the Posadists uh, yeah. who are, yeah, who are part of the coalition. And to people in Argentina, that's very funny to see Trotskyists being part of Peronism because uh, they, they've been identified as the only left-wing opposition to Peronism. Even the anarchists in Argentina, a lot of them are very, sympathetic to Peronism. Wow. No, that's, no, that's actually interesting. Um, yeah. And um, I, I kind of wanted to go to, towards, um, I want to kind of go back in time, back towards like the fifties and the sixties in which, you know, back then you had the, uh, the UFO mania and the UFO craze and everything. People were seeing flying saucers and, and, and everything. And, and one of the guys, from what I understand, is that a guy named Dante Minazzoli, uh, an Italian, uh, who was part of the uh, Fourth International and the Posadas Fourth International, um, was like you know very interested in uh, flying saucers and the UFOlogy. And eventually, Posadas actually wrote a speech about this called "Flying Saucers." The full title is "The Fly Flying Saucers: The Process of Matter and Energy, Science, the Revolutionary and Working Class Struggle, and the Socialist Future of Mankind." bit of a mouthful mm -hmm. but it was an interesting read since it talks about humanity uh, in unlocking all the energies and potentials of the earth in order to power civilization and 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 whatnot and diff and how we would perceive time differently and how aliens would perceive time differently um but yeah so why flying saucers well um one of the major thinkers of his movement with this guy dante minazzoli and he was as a kid very interested in science fiction and when the UFO phenomenon first swept the world in 1949, Minazzoli really thought that there were alien spacecraft visiting Earth. Uh, and this was in the early days of uh, the Posadas movement in Argentina. And he yeah. said, look, this is something, this is like a major world event that aliens are visiting. Uh, we ought to write about it. And at the time, uh, the party said, no, we have like bigger things to, you know, we have more immediate things to worry about than this. Um, so he was prohibited from talking about it in the 40s. Uh, but in the 60s, um, as the the megalomania of Posadas and his inner circle had kind of grown to the point where they believed that they were the thinkers of world revolution, uh, Minazzoli brings this up again and says, we need to have an answer for uh, what this phenomena is. And so they, they're debating this at one of their congresses 
um, a lot of people, a lot of people in the group don't still don't really believe in it or think it's silly to talk about. And so the essay, the Flying Saucers essay is Posadas' intervention into this debate. And he basically says, he agrees with Minazoli that the phenomenon is real and that if aliens are more advanced then they're uh, something like socialists or communists. Mm -hmm. um, and if we were able to contact them, it would be, it would help be helpful to us. But yeah. he agrees with the other side too, that we don't really have the ability to necessarily contact them. Um, and we shouldn't worry too much about who they are or what they are or how to contact them because we have everything we need on earth to create socialism or communism right now. And that should be our mm -hmm. primary focus. Yeah. There'll be more, they're more focused about like, uh, uh, organizing the or unionizing the uh, uh, the shoe factory down by the street rather than uh, you know uh, doing SETI or stuff like that. Uh, for those exactly. who don't know, SETI is the uh, I, I don't remember what the acronym is, but it's like you the know search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Exactly, yeah. Because I mean, even if you if you can't unionize a shoe factory without the help of aliens, then your cause is a lost cause, my friend. <laughs> so yeah. And I, I actually have... that we're going to get to that, Aaron. We're going to get to that. We're okay. going to, there's that's good. I, yeah. I, I was being too impatient. I feel like some wacky stuff is waiting for me. Like, oh, oh, there is. <laughs> they, they try contacting aliens in a way or two. Uh, um, the Pisadas yeah. did not. Okay. But we'll bring up uh, something about uh, labor unions and aliens, but first off. Yeah. So like, I just want to give some, the viewers some context yeah, so this is a this goes back to the original Marxist idea in which you have historical materialism in which societies uh, develop through different uh, that go through different time periods, go through different societal changes. So you start from like hunter gatherer societies and become more complex, like city states and whatnot. Eventually, we get like empires and then feudalism, and then you get capitalism with that um, and wage labor, and eventually. We move towards a communist society, or if it's Marxist-Leninist, you go through a socialist society, then a communist society. And since these aliens are so advanced, they would be perceived as communist and thus sympathetic to, uh, you know, the worker struggle, the terrestrial worker struggle. But yes, and so you were saying about like uh, Poseidus's actual like heightening uh, megalomania. This also occurs like during when they're getting exiled and pushed out of, uh, Latin, of uh, Latin America. And they have to go to Europe, from what I understand. Yeah, so uh, Posadas is arrested in Uruguay, where he's leading the Posadas Fourth International. And they want to um, uh, send him back to Argentina, but Argentina has a, a more of a right-wing anti-communist government. So he negotiates in uh, 1969 uh, his exile to Italy, and he resets up the Fourth International and uh, the Posadas Fourth International in Italy, which is significant um, because while the Posadists in Latin America, a lot of them have deep roots in the workers' movement and were very intellectual, the Posadists in Europe were new recruits for the most part, were very young, and really most of their experience with Trotskyism or Marxism or revolutionary socialism comes through Posadists. So there he had even more control over the ideology of the movement, whereas some of the other intellectuals around him could kind of rein in his weird ideas. Um, and as the result of this in the 70s, leading up to his death in 81, Pisazim really becomes a complete personality cult around this one person, Homero Cristalli. Whereas before it was more of a, you know, a, a traditional Leninist organization around this uh, internal circle of, of intellectuals. Yeah. And that's where you get like the monolithism, uh, you know, it's where all things go to go are to Cristalis. Uh, and if you go, you can contradict that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And you and in the book, you were mentioning how it became like almost cult like because of this uh, because of this monolithism, as well as another thing of uh, uh, it was called revolutionary morality, from what I remember. Right. Uh, that was another very strange thing about Pisazim from the beginning is that he uh, believed that living life in the movement in your cadres um, had to be like how life should be lived after the revolution. And this included very intense uh, regulations on um, how to live your life. Um, 
in terms of what you can eat, how you spend your money, uh, but also dating and sexuality. And primarily, um, there was a, a something of a prohibition on procreate, uh, non-procreative sex. And so if you wanted to have sex, you had to be, um, you had to have a marriage that was sanctioned by the party. And then uh, you had to have sex to have a child that was sanctioned by the party. Um, and even if you were married to another militant, and even if you were sanctioned to have sex, um, Posadas would separate couples from one another so they could use all of their uh, sexual energy towards the movements. Yeah. But I mean, he even broke that as well because one time uh, he was getting a, he was getting a blow job from one of the, uh, the female, younger female cadres. Right. Yeah. I, I always encourage people to, to read that far into the book to where Posadas gets head. Um, he, <laughs> he, like many cult leaders, uh, took advantage of, of his young recruits. And um, he thought that actually for him having sex pro non-procreatively or recreationally was good because it helped him come up with better ideas. Mm. And yeah, so, so it was, uh, it was yeah, a creative he, thing. He, yeah, he actually um, kicked his wife out of the movement who was a huge part in organizing the movement um, but was never really treated that way and um, took up with one of the uh, married or had some sort of marriage-like relationship with one of these young recruits and had a, a daughter with her who he proclaimed would be the next leader of the international. And so like they're on this compound and everything in, in, in like the countryside of Italy, it wasn't near Rome, right? Yep, outside of Rome. Yeah, so they're on this compound, they have the daughter and everything. And then shortly around that time, he also gets into the other aspect of Poseidonism, which is very important, which is dolphins. So. Um, explain this dolphin uh, business as well. Yeah, so uh, this, the aliens were not super important to Posadism, but the Posadists by and large did believe in aliens and UFOs. Nuclear war was very important to Posadism. The dolphins was much less important. It came uh, just in Posadis' final couple years when he was kind of, you know, he, he would always never been totally there. Uh, yeah but uh, he's always been like a very manic thinker. But in his last couple of years, he really starts sundowning, as they say. And he became really interested in this idea that uh, the Soviet Union had conducted some kind of experiments with dolphin uh, childbirthing and also childbirthing in space. And so um, he was really incorrect about whatever he had read. There was a Soviet midwife who uh, spearheaded the idea of water birthing and believed that dolphins were natural midwives, but he was not part of the state. In fact, he was exiled from the Soviet Union for being a, a mystic and being part of this natural childbirth movement that was prohibited. Mm. And um, I couldn't find anything about the, the space childbirthing stuff. But to Posadas, you know, wherever he read this, a tabloid or whatever, uh, he thought that this was a symbol of this coming total unity that socialism and communism would create in which humans, animals, uh, space and earth and, and even uh, objects would become one with, the, with one another. There would be no subject and object anymore. And he, so the dolphin became the symbol of this mystical unity that we are heading towards. And he believed that uh, humans and dolphins need to have a more of a fraternal relationship, something like humans and dogs have. And so when he was dying, one of his last wishes was that they would put a pool at the compound and put a dolphin in the pool so they could eat dinner with the dolphin. So uh, kind of wacky ideas, but um, not, uh, not an essential part of Posadism. Although yeah. it is, uh, it's interesting that this very marginal idea uh, became part of the meme and became part of what made him so famous today and so beloved, ironically. Yeah. Yeah, the other part that I remember of it was that the that the the, the water bursts would like create these a new race of human beings because they could breathe underwater or something like that because the babies wouldn't drown. Um, and yeah, and this it, that it's just like really crazy. Like I would call it like radical, like deep ecology because it's not just animals and humans. Like we're all together. It's object, like you said, it's like objects and literally everything. It's kind of like almost like this, like a a spiritual goop we all become i guess yeah definitely it's it's it, exactly it's millenarianism it's like this uh 
it's this extremely uh, almost Christian messianic concept, um, which, uh, you know, is not unheard of in communism. Like there's Marxism has always had its messianic elements to it, but he was very explicit about it, which makes him yeah. unique. And he could do that because he was basically in very like he had no intellectual bearings on what he could and couldn't say. Right. Yeah. He could, whatever he thought was uh, accepted at that point after he kicks out the yeah. most of the intellectuals in the movement in 1974, including including uh, Dante Minazzoli. Right. Yeah. He was. Um, yeah. I mean, by Minazzoli's account, he was uh, he kind of left on his own, um, but oh, okay. uh, he kicked out. Right. He kicked out Minazzoli and Minazzoli later became a ufologist full time. Um, yeah. Really dedicating his life to ufology and trying to let other uh, researchers of UFOs um, know that Marxism could help them understand the UFO phenomena. Yes. And this is like where we this is where I kind of wanted to. Uh, yeah. And, that's, and this is a great segue to what I wanted to ask about, because once post-sadism dies this is kind of like where you mentioned in the book and i think this is a great like thing where you have the post-sadism which was more like grounded in like you know leninism but you also leninism and trotskyism with its own unique like uh, eclectic elements but then you get into neo-post-sadism which is like what you get after uh uh post-sadism's death and this is where this is mainly being spearheaded by initially by minazoli and this other guy paul schultz right yeah and paul schultz um was uh, another Posadas militant who actually stayed in even to the end. He's, he, he was recruited in Argentina uh, and, and moved to Germany and set up the German cadre. And so when Posadas dies, he was really left without, um, like unsure of what to do with himself. And he uh, began to hear voices and he believed he was being contacted by extraterrestrials. And so he too became uh, a, a figure in the UFO movement writing a newsletter that talked about um, a, a specific sect of ufology around the figure of Billy Meyer, who claimed to have contact with uh, Plajoran extraterrestrials um, and Posadas and saying that these two figures are going to help us um, evade World War III and come to some sort of cosmic consciousness. So Minizoli was a way more scientific ufologist, more in the vein of, of Jacques Vallée, um, whereas uh, Schultz was more of the wingnut uh, element of, of UFOs. And I don't think they had any contact with each other, but I think it's it's really remarkable that two of the ex-Posadas militants independently became ufologists full-time. Yeah. And like, um, and, and, I, and what was interesting about Dante was, is that he was trying, This is I love this quote that you put in, he was trying to do uh, what Karl Marx did to philosophy instead of just like, you know, making it all, like all pie in the sky stuff, but actually like bring it down to like down to earth, I guess, like bring it, UFOs down to earth, make them like more practical and stuff like that. Yeah. And uh, he also believed that as the Soviet Union um, crumbled, that the militaries of the world would have to find a new threat. Uh, to justify their budgets and, and their power. And he believed that UFOs would be the new threat and that we would be seeing science fiction and uh, fake um, uh, information uh, in the U UFO world that aliens were enemies and here to abduct us and uh, hurt us and that kind of thing. And that's where and, we get uh, Independence Day. Exactly. And so in, in a way he was right. Um, Although I think they didn't need aliens to justify those budgets, they would just eventually use Russia. Yeah. Or like Iraq or terrorism as well. Right, yeah. They, they found, you know, other ways to do it. Yeah, exactly. But then once they pass away and they move on, they start influencing other groups as well. Like you talked about the men in red, uh, which were this radical, um, uh, like, I want to say more like, I, 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 more like anarchist group, I, I, I would assume, but they seemed like more libertarian, I guess. And they actually went to one of the conferences, this conference, this UFO conference in San Marino. I didn't even know San Marino held UFO conferences. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> and they, and then they, and then they put, and then 
they put on this uh, what's it called this banner that said uh ufos the people um which was like you know really interesting because like i mean you talk about this in your book how the uh how like you had like th- these uh these leftists coming into the ufo uh subculture and everything or the ufo ufology which is like predominantly like a libertarian right like you know uh mm-hmm. fox Mulder kind of stuff as well yeah it was a normal ufo conference um the, the kind that are held all the time uh all over the world and i don't know if it was a particularly big one but yeah the men in red were autonomists which is like a, a very it's like an idiosyncratic kind of italian um libertarian marxism and they uh were were something in between uh yeah, like I think they really liked Dante Minazzoli, but they were more like pranksters. So they thought the UFO thing was kind of a nice um, way to do sort of a theater to get attention for Marxism in general. Um, and they took over this conference. They like took the stage because one of the speakers was a, uh, a retired American general who said that UFOs posed this big threat. And, you know, basically a pro-military speaker, anti, pro-military anti-alien speaker, and they took the stage to denounce him and threw flyers. And even though it might've been a prank and not entirely sincere, um, they succeeded in causing a rift within the Italian UFO community. Wow. Its effects are felt to the stuff. <laughs> Allegedly. Where would we be without a united Italian UFO community? I mean, the world would be such a better place. Um, yeah, and... Uh, and so, like, yeah, NASA the whole thing that you were saying about, like, you know, uh, yeah, the uh, whole, like, uh, xenophobia, literally xenophobia towards aliens and everything like that. I mean, it's, it's mm-hmm. fascinating. Um, this is the whole deal with um, Poseidism and neo-Poseidism in which, like, you know, it heightens or it focuses on uh, these more, like, eccentric and wacky aspects of that were developed by uh, Posadas. And then as we get into the information age it starts becoming a meme, particularly with a fully automated luxury communism in 2014. And so like you were saying, it became like a more of a meme in like 2016 as well. Yeah, I mean, this is when memes became pretty political, I think, and uh, like just around like the chaos of uh, the election in the United States between Trump and Bernie and and Brexit and all, all this, uh, these sort of extreme politics becoming central, um, there was a explosion of, of bizarre political memes. And within, within this, there was this idea of space communism or automated communism from uh, Aaron Bastani, who's a, uh, from Novara Media in the UK. And then Posadas became, he was always sort of around in like, uh, leftist train spotter circles as like a wacky figure to talk about. Um, but he really became more mainstream at this point because he uh, became the sort of patron saint of this space communism. And people didn't really know much about him, but they loved the idea that there was this uh, South American Trotskyist figure who believed in aliens and nuclear war and dolphins. It just resonated with people in some way. And so he... Uh, got his own meme pages and um, was just like constantly talked about um, in, in like these sort of satirical, ironic leftist circles. And uh, like, but the, some Vol- people like were the Vulcans just... as well. Right. And yeah, people recognizing the left wing implications of Star Trek uh, connected Posadas to this because the backstory of Star Trek, uh, the first contest in Star Trek, is extremely similar to uh, what Posadas wrote about in Flying Saucers. He became oh. not only the, uh, one, of, one of the most important Trotskyists in these memes, but in terms of Google Analytics, he became the most important Trotskyist in the world, uh, at least in the United States and the UK. Searches for him were above his rivals at the time and um, in the 70s and 80s, like no one, very few know, people know who Noel Moreno, or Ernst Mandel are, but pretty much everyone of a certain age knows who Posadas is, if you're like a leftist on the internet. And then uh, at, at one point, he actually surpassed Trotsky himself in Google Analytics, which is pretty sad. Yeah. So, yeah, and then, and then you get in 
to the uh, what's it called? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that ironic politics as well, because I what I what I find beautiful and about the whole thing is that um, you talk about how like postatism is kind of like a hope against hope or like you know an absurdist reaction to demand the impossible in the in the face of complete hopelessness that we face today. You know, with a increasing financialization, neo hyper neoliberalism, neoliberalism. And, you know, the climate catastrophe that we're facing right now. So this would like translate into things like, for example, the uh, the Democratic Socialist of America, um, uh, the Posadis Caucus. And for our viewers, uh, they even fund they actually hosted a um, what's it called? They did like a uh, what's it called? A charity run for uh, for uh, Hurricane Harvey. Yeah, fundraiser. Yeah, they they did. They did a couple uh, hurricane relief fundraisers. Wow. uh, 2017, I think. Oh yeah, yeah. And actually, um, I didn't write the, write about this in the book, but I would I would heard that uh, they were actually banned because DSA has certain regulations over what kind of factions can form within the DSA, and so oh, yeah. some of the members of the DSA Posadas Caucus uh, were um, told uh, more or less directly that the Posadas Caucus could no longer exist. So wow. they were suppressed within a DSA. Damn. Just as much factualism as like the Trotskyists. <laughs> um, I mean, it's uh, yeah. the uh, left tradition of the left as old as time itself, just dividing yourself yeah. up in factions, right? Yeah, the DSA was trying to prevent these factions, but they were suppressing a group that, I, as far as I could tell, was satirical and, and just meant well, yeah. like a, a ploy for fundraisers. But yeah. I, don't, I don't think it was like a big scandal since it was a joke, but I, I do yeah. think some of the members were not very happy about it, nonetheless. Yeah. I guess I'll have to join like another, one of the other like caucuses that they have. Um, and, uh, the, and the other one, this is what I was telling you about, Aaron, is that like, you know, labor unions and aliens. If you want aliens to come down and help the revolution, they can join the Intergalactic Workers League, Posadis. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, exactly. Best best way to go at it. But like we touched upon Poseidism being a form of apocalyptic Marxism and like nuclear weapons were the key to causing this apocalypse, right? But would you say there are some Poseidist groups who use the climate catastrophe upon us as a way to have a Marxist utopia? Or are they still have like a do they still have a nuclear angle? Or a futurist. Yeah. Well, the Posadists that still exist, like you said, run by Posadas' son, Leon Cristalli, um, believe that Posadas was essentially right about nuclear war, only uh, what uh, happened was through um, certain plagues and uh, epidemics that came out. And they wrote this in the early 2000s and 2010s. Um, and Strangely enough, they haven't made the same claim about the current pandemic because that I think would be their uh, a better argument for you know some sort of industrial capitalism caused international disaster. Um, uh, this reminds me but, of uh, uh, sorry oh sorry to interrupt but I was just gonna say this reminds yeah. me of like it's it's one of the actual like more like Reddit ideologies but it's called bioposatism. I didn't know this actually was like an actual thought that they had. Yeah, I haven't heard uh, of that one specifically, um, yeah. but yeah, the uh, the the Posadists today that you know the the real Posadists um, who are based yeah. in that they they run a site called Posadists today in Europe, and then uh, they also have the another wing of it in Latin America run by Cristali. Um, yeah, they don't they don't develop a lot of analysis. Uh, and it's not entirely in line with Posadas' thinking. It's a little bit different now. Uh, but in terms of the war in Ukraine, for example, they support Putin 100%. They, um, I'm sure if Putin were to announce that he was going to nuke uh, uh, Kiev or, or the United States or something, they would support him in that. Um, but that's no longer a very explicit part of their program. Yeah, fair yeah. point. They had to like adapt to the 21st century where like nuclear weapons were less prominent. Right. And, and also um, like their position in the si- early 60s was even different than it was in the 70s. 
in the early 60s, their position was nuclear war is inevitable and desirable. And then I think as the world kind of got used to the fact that nuclear war would be, uh, would be something like nuclear winter would lead to that, they had to change that position. Yeah, yep. because like back then, everyone, but everyone like thought like, you know, you could just like hide in your fallout shelter and then like a couple weeks later, you could just like, you know, pop right out. Um, but nowadays it's like, you know, it's not going to be, it's, it's not going to be like fallout. It's going to be, a, it's going to be an apocalypse. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. Like, yeah. It would be hard to survive for sure. Yeah. Like it was basically, yeah. Like it, it was, it would be hard to survive for the next 200 years. But like speaking of nuclear catastrophes, did the Poseidus take a stance on say Chernobyl? Because like, I'd say that was the closest to a nuclear catastrophe we had in our in ever since nuclear weapons were invented um you know i don't know if well chernobyl happened in 1986 yeah so posadas was dead at this point um and i don't recall seeing anything in the posadas press about chernobyl explicitly um but i would imagine their position would be something like everything you hear about it is imperialist propaganda the soviet union has it under control Mm. yeah yeah fair. yeah so um uh yeah i'm just thinking about like uh what we would uh how we want to finish this off actually i do want to quickly show you something uh andy this is something they are sure. selling posadas merch on redbubble and i want you to have a quick look at this one yeah i've seen this before um it's yeah it's really interesting the the combination of of hojaism and Pistatus. And um, yeah. and again, like the way uh, Hoja, the Albanian leader, um, is kind of remembered fondly by young people because of this, uh, the this program of building so many bunkers throughout the country. Yeah. And um, people are way more interested. Like if, if these thinkers can have some kind of fun meme about them, uh, people are way more interested in their, their thought and their lives. It's like a, a way in. Whereas if somebody's just a boring intellectual Marxist whose ideas might be very good, no one really cares. So like, yeah. I've tried to figure out how to meme like some of the thinkers I like, like Gilles Dave, for example, like how do I get people to read Gilles Dave? And you know, like in, his, in a Eclipse and Reemergence of the Communist Movement, he talks about like uh, growing potatoes under communism or something. So I thought maybe like potatoes would be a good meme. Um, but it, it seems like to get people interested enough to read it, you got to meme it somehow. Yeah. You got to get the engagement first. Uh, I mean, think, right. Actually, I think potatoes would work. I think that's going to be a great idea. Uh, send us send us the uh, things and we'll post it on Twitter and we'll distribute it um, in a PD, <laughs> uh, flyer format. We'll print them off and then distribute it around my university. That way, everybody will be um, will, will follow this guy's uh, yeah, thinking. So our mi millions of followers on Instagram can see the meme. Yes, Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I know. And actually, funny thing about that, Andy, was actually I lived in Albania for three years. And you would see, you would literally see these things like these, these bunkers everywhere, like across the country. And they can't get them out because it's too expensive to. Like you, even like downtown in the middle of the capital, Tirana, um, you would have like this one is randomly placed one. And like some of them have actually been decorated because this, no, everyone's like, yeah, what the fuck are we going to do with it? I don't know. Make some art out of it. Yeah, and another thing that a lot of the, the memesters don't know is that those bunkers were really built because he expected a war with Tito. Yeah. Oh, interesting. He was less afraid of NATO and Greece than he was of Tito. He thought that for sure they would go to war. And there was something, you know, like, a, you know, Kosovo has basically become that conflict, but that happened after Hoja passed away. Yeah. And it was a whole... Uh... Uh, what was it called? Um, yeah. No, it was that whole tension with the ethnic Albanians in uh, Kosovo. Mm -hmm. And uh, and with uh, if, T if, if uh, Hoja was able to, uh, was it called, get nuclear weapons and make contact with the Plajorans, we could have had uh, Hoja Posadis thought. <laughs> I mean, that, wouldn't that be such a greater world? We, it, I mean, that's the thing about uh, every time I think about Posadism, I always think about fallouts. Like, okay, if you don't know this, viewers, one, play it. Don't play Fallout 4, but in Fallout 3, in which, like, the world has been destroyed uh, by nuclear war and people are coming out and living in a 
an irradiated world. There is a DLC, I think, or like a I think a mini or like a side quest where you can get where you get abducted by aliens and you fight them on your spaceship. Oh uh, yeah. I imagine the worst would be, DLC. Yeah. yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. I actually I don't I don't know if it was a DLC or not. It was a while no, ago. No, no, yeah, Mother Ship's Eight Days was a DLC, yeah. Oh, it was in a DLC, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you play and then what I imagine when instead of fighting the aliens, which would be the capitalist propaganda of uh, of uh, Fallout, you know. Uh, the American xenophobic uh, anti-galactic friendship uh, capitalist propaganda. Instead, you become friends with the aliens, and then you rebuild the wasteland instead of you know upholding the uh, the enclave or the uh, or the uh, what's it called the um, uh, what's it called of steel. Uh, yeah the Brotherhood of Steel, which yeah. in a Marxist lens will be two sides of the same coin of like you know of the liberal military industrial complex. And the far right and the conservative military industrial complex. I've so never played say, that game, but I, if for sure, if there's ever a chance to align with the aliens, I think I'd have to take it. I don't know yeah. what they would be like, but I can't imagine them being any stupider than humans. Yeah, unfortunately, you can't align with it in that game because it's a it's a American imperialist propaganda. Oh shit! No, I mean it's like not to get into it more, but it's basically a criticism of American exceptionalism. Uh, disguised as propaganda, but yeah. But I think people are too dense, but even Fallout fans are too dense to realize that. Yeah, but I mean, that's to do with like fans of like Marxism, video games and everything. Like sometimes they're too dense to understand the subtext. No, 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 I mean like normal fans. The real Posadas video game is of course Echo the Dolphin. Echo the Dolphin? Exactly. Only true Posadas know that. Echo yeah, that's a Sega Genesis game um, in which you play as a, a dolphin trying to find his missing pod. And <laughs> wow. I don't remember entirely the plot, but I think there is like a nuclear and alien aspect to it as well. Oh my God, there is an alien aspect to it. Well, at least there's like a deep sea animal or something like that. But no, oh, I'm actually, looking at the fights aliens. Oh, he fights he aliens. Fights aliens. Oh, that's so it's not entirely Posadist, but it's... Uh, you it know, the combination of dolphins and aliens is definitely, it's pretty close. All you need is nuclear warheads and then boom, it's, it's, it's Posadist. <laughs> and, and I'm looking at the pictures of it right now and it's like, you know, it's, it's a, yeah, Sega Genesis. So this is like very retro. This would like work perfectly for like Posadist vaporwave shit, you know? I mean, that was like oh, all definitely. the rage back in 2016. And, you know, there's a big, resurgence of interest in Sonic the Hedgehog and Sonic the Hedgehog is uh, a game about animal liberation. It's about uh, this uh, hedgehog who was the victim of Dr. Robotnik's vivisection. And he was able to use some of the technology that Robotnik created these, these sneakers to be able to, to sneak into the factory at night and rescue animals who were being turned into robots. So it's so an does, animal liberation game. How, how does Shadow the Hedgehog come into this whole story then? Shadow is part of Sonic's gorilla cadre living in the woods. Okay, you know I thought I thought um, I thought Shadow was an enemy of Sonic, and I was assuming that he would be a scab. I think they're frenemies. I don't know if Shadow. Oh, okay. I don't know the whole canon, but I don't think Shadow like works for Robotnik. But I could be wrong about that. Ah, okay. I love how yeah. we first started with a serious discussion about Poseidism and like alien comments, but now we're talking about Sonic lore. Yeah, good, good, just, good guys. This is one of the like left wing uh, like gaming podcasts where we ana- where we analyze uh, what's it called like where we analyze a uh, cookie clicker through a uh, Marxist Leninist lens of a uh, oh constant God. capitalist yeah. accumulation. Yeah, well, I think that, yeah, I, th- I think that, so to wrap up for all of you, Poseidism initially was more or less an actually normal ideology of an offshoot of Trotskyism and uh, eternal revolution and lifting up the, uh, the, the global, the proletariat of the global south in order to bring about world revolution since it wasn't happening in the global north. This would eventually then include uh, nuclear weapon, uh, nuclear uh, catastrophe. Uh, yeah, nuclear catastrophe, nuclear warfare, um, in which everyone that was left standing, you know, would be the workers. And then eventually it starts getting more wackier, as uh, uh, Andy said, about the, uh, the increasing megalomania of uh, a Posadist. 
And this would lead into, once he passed away, it would lead on to the memory of thinkers like Paul and Dante that would go into neoposatism that would translate to now we understand with the modern memes, you know, nuclear annihilation with the help of dolphins, a uh, form of deep ecology and, xenoph and radical xenophilia of, of the Plagiorans and other aliens like coming in to help the, the working class uh, overthrow uh, the... Uh, the bourgeoisie who fled into their bunk, their nuclear fallout bunkers. And yeah, how'd I do? How'd I do Andy? How was that? Sorry if I was stealing. You did great. Oh, no, no, you. that was, that was, uh, that was really good. And I, you did a, a great job, um, leading, leading me through the history of Posadism and it's all, all its glory. So thanks a lot for oh, that. It was you. a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. You got a Posada seal of approval. I also forgot one thing and you talked about, this is actually like one of the episodes I first listened to of the Antifada was the uh, one with Comrade uh, Comrade Communicator, who was one of like the major le American Posadist thinkers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully we'll have him on soon uh, because he is uh, uh, of Ukrainian origin and I, I think he's got a lot to say about the war right now. Oh, wow, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah I'm excited about that episode. Um, so, uh, yeah, if, if you were interested in learning more about Posadism and all of the cult stuff and the sex scandals and the autonomous Posadists and everything uh, that we touched on, check out my book, I Want to Believe, if it's available from Pluto Books. You can get it online. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, hope you like it. Well, I like it. I, I, yeah. I'm also going to read it. And like we're going to write the name of the book to the podcast description just yes. for extra measure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll link, we'll link it in the, uh, in the description. Yeah. Um, so yes. Uh, th uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. Uh, thank you, Annie, for coming on the show. Thank you. Have a good day guys. Yeah. yeah have a good day. Andy. Bye-bye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bye Andy. Bye.